listeners. Welcome to Tech Policy Grind, a project of the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. My name is Emery Roan, and today should be a treat for privacy nerds out there. This is another conversation brought to you from the floor of State of the Net 2019, an internet policy conference held each year in Washington, D.C. that I attended just a few weeks ago. This is an interview, or really a privacy advocate's react to State of the Net, with regular co-host Joe Jerome of the Center for Democracy and Technology and Lee Tien, senior staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Together, we have a fairly wonky dive into some of the updates and confusion in the California Consumer Privacy Act and some really interesting discussion about the role predictability should play in policy. We briefly cover the recent Illinois Supreme Court case Rosenbach v. Six Flags and the importance for the Biometric Information Privacy Act and informational and privacy injuries in general. And of course, we place our bets on whether or not we'll see a federal privacy law this year. Honestly, it was a real pleasure for me to get to talk to Lee and bring you along for the conversation. Lee is someone who I aspire to be like. He is a brilliant speaker and an expert in all the coolest areas of law. If you like this, and I hope you do, let us know and follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind. With nothing else to introduce, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lee Tien at State of the Net 2019. I want to thank Lee for joining us today, Lee Tien, uh, our fellow advocate over at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, senior staff attorney and Adam's chair for internet rights. Is there any other background or bio I need to plug for that? <laughs> nope, nope, that, that's good enough for me. You were on a panel earlier today, or at State of the Net 2019. The panel was titled... Well, there's two privacy panels. There's a privacy panel that's looking at federal law, and then there's one that's looking at CCPA and GDPR, so... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that one. Right. This was, was this pressure cooker? What does GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act mean for Washington? Better title. Yeah. Yes, but still a vague, ambiguous, <laughs> and Rorschach, bloody kind of title. And as you saw, you know, we didn't actually talk very much about the about the title we were talked about the history of ccpa and then we actually talked a lot about sort of what about approaches to uh privacy regulation uh i don't think any of us were particularly expert on gdpr issues so uh, it was actually sort of difficult to to get anything going there i mean one of the things that i actually wanted to talk about and i actually wanted to try to get uh folks on the panel to react to were uh, aspects of the gdpr how it's like how it's not like california but but less about the substantive stuff mm -hmm. and more about the uh procedural and enforcement part because you know i think people tend to look at um, privacy statutes and just go straight to what what's the rule but you know in the real world it's not what the rule is it's about who's enforcing it what kinds of remedies there are or what kinds of transparency you know what kinds of investigations that you're able to do um, you know how broadly uh, are the stakeholders actually going to be moving uh, one of the things that I thought I think is really interesting about GDPR uh, but which and which sort of disconfirms a lot of people's I think sort of surface arguments is that you know they're going oh you know GDPR is this thing that's going to be more predictable than California and so if we're already complying with GDPR why should we have to comply with California and there's there's just no way that there's anything predictable about GDPR 
Actually, I love that point that you brought up in the panel earlier, and when you were talking about, like, you know, the, the criticism that, oh, well, this is unpredictable. It's like, well, everything is. I don't, what do you expect to be able, you know, once, and yeah, you said something earlier in the panel that I thought was really interesting um, and succinct. I tried to type it down. I don't think I finished the statement. So maybe you can help me out here, but you said that it, you know, it's one thing to talk economically about the issue, and it's another to appreciate the sort of practical reality that consumers have many more issues with this industry than just the sort of economic decisions. And I don't know, I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit or yeah, well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, wh when I was talking about it on the panel, you know, my, I was reacting to uh, Neil Chilson's, you know, point of view, which is that we need to be focused on uh, consumer injury. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then the way that I think a lot of the folks were more economically inclined, uh, then they want to try to figure out how do you quantify that level of consumer injury, consumer harm, and balance it against the, you know, potential benefits. And you know, I I am not an economist, uh, and I don't I don't want to denigrate economics as a discipline, because I think it's really, really useful, but it is not the only way to look at yeah. things. Uh, and, in, and if we're talking about laws uh, in the United States, then we are talking about what people think and believe. What do they want to have happen? And it may not be able to, you may not be able to translate that into an economic harm uh, it may be something as simple as, and it's ironic because the companies have always harped on trust, trust, trust. Uh, and I think we've, we're seeing now the what they didn't want to have happen when they were talking trust. It's like, oh, we have a trust problem. Yeah. You can deny that, but if you've been talking about trust and people don't trust you anymore, then there is a problem. That And one of the reactions is we need some sort of stronger privacy regulation so that we have a reason to trust, or as you know, one of my not favorite presidents used to say, trust but verify, <laughs> right? And how are we going to do that? Uh, and one of the things that I like about GDPR is precisely that it authorizes the DPAs to do a lot of uh, potential investigations. Uh, it also creates these accountability obligations. Now, people might argue that's too expensive and burdensome on the companies. I think we can have a debate about what level uh, of that needs to happen, but I think it's very, very clear that one of the problems that consumers have is they don't know, and they don't know how they would know what is happening with their data, and we need to address that, and I don't think that there is a, any kind of simple economic analysis to really get us to that point. You need the political process, and so the, the fact is that the sort of the unpredictability, uh, the kinds of debates we're having, the ambiguity in the words. I, uh, you know, they're not, from one, in one sense, they're a bug. They're also a feature. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is Reasonable the way expectation of privacy. we figure out what we really think is by trying. If you are trying, it's like trying to write a novel all in one sitting. You can't do that. You have to go through multiple drafts. Uh, and uh, so no one's saying that this thing is perfect, you know, that this is just, you know, we're just going to invent something out of whole cloth that's going to work. 
We don't know. This is the real world, and it's changing all the time. Amen. Uh, I, I have so many different reactions to some of the things you said. Uh, I always think, and I think I'm supposed to be the, the more industry-friendly person of the three of us talking right now, <laughs> um, but I, I guess I'm sort of struck by the fact that, that industry players seem to think that a law is going to provide clarity. I mean, as we, I don't know if you're following what's happening in Illinois with BIPA and the really awesome Supreme Court decision the, a few weeks uh, ago. Well, yeah. yeah. No, let's, well, let's, unpack that. let's unpack that. Wait, well, we've got... Uh, Oh, an opportunity to talk about this case. So well, I don't know if we need to unpack it, but I, I guess I just want to talk about how we're a litigious society. Um, for people who don't know, BIPA was a law passed 10 years ago. A lot of people, there's, a, again, a lot of ambiguity. It's probably not the most perfectly drafted law. There weren't a lot of court cases on it for as long as far as I could tell. And for a long time, we've been waiting for an interpretation of what the law actually meant. And I think, you know, to uh, Neil Chilson's point about harm, companies were starting to say, you don't have standing to sue under this law because what's the harm? Even if we're violating the law, we're not doing anything with your biometrics. And I think the Illinois Supreme Court sort of slapped that down to say, no, you have a vested interest in the protections of this law. And okay. I think equally important, I mean, I would, you know, the, they were, the Illinois Supreme Court said, the Illinois legislature wrote this law and the way that they saw it, a violation so-called technical violations were sufficient to trigger litigation under the law. And that is the, the area where sort of under the guise of policy, there have been a lot of attempts by the companies, or, or I won't say attempts, it's been the sort of the default that unless you really were able to show some kind of affirmative harm on your part, that you shouldn't be able to use the laws that we've actually had on the books for ages, right? I mean, you go back, go to the Spokio case, which is a Supreme Court case uh, around whether or not uh, a person could actually use certain statutory provisions of the Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, when there was an actual violation by the company and the problem that the Supreme Court had um, and which many courts have had is, well, you know, it seems like this wasn't wasn't exactly harmful. So do you have, you know, the requisite uh, injury required under the federal constitution? Um, you know, that, uh, that standing issue gets very sort of almost becomes a th thing unto itself. But what it, where it really has bite is if you think that you actually have to show harm, then a va the vast majority of privacy violations would never actually support any kind of, of litigation, any kind of, of redress. So, and uh, you know, the, the example that, that I always use is you know, the idea that um, you know, you shouldn't listen in on somebody's private conversation. I don't actually, I don't think anyone would argue uh, that somebody has to take what I said and then use it against me in order for, uh, for that to be perceived as 
an infringement on my privacy. The mere fact that you're not the person I was talking to, yeah. but you're listening in, and I have no idea that you are, and I'm gonna, that's I enough. Was reacting to the previous panel, I, I think it was Neil. I don't mean to beat up on you, Neil, if you're listening. <laughs> Please come on the show. Um, no, we got to beat up on Neil. That's, that's <laughs> the point. That's what but I, I was reacting to one of the things where he said that, you know, oh, the harms from GDPR, there's some preliminary evidence that if we're concerned about innovation, that's a, something to be concerned about. But Which I think is all rebuttable. Uh, yeah, totally. But he's, the thing that I'm reacting to is saying, but, you know, we're not clear if there's really any benefits to the GDPR. And to that, I say, well, except for the fact that there are tens of thousands of Americans that have already requested and asserted their rights under the GDPR to American companies serving Europeans. Like, that act alone is a benefit to me. The, the idea that they took control back of something that for them was clearly something that bothered them is itself a tangible benefit. Um, and if that is a tangible benefit, then the opposite of that feels like it should be a tangible harm. But I, I agree. And transparency slash disclosure is actually sort of a generic class of things that doesn't fit neatly into that harm sort of model. Because we're hearing the companies say, yeah, we understand there needs to be more transparency and disclosure. Uh, and yet, it, it's just as hard to say, oh, because I don't know X, you know, how have I yeah. been harmed? Um, you know, in order to try to even work that into the harm model, you have to, to really begin to, to, to think in terms of what level of knowledge do consumers have? What level of knowledge do we think that consumers should have? And that's actually going to end up being sort of dependent on, you know, a lot of different things. Um, you know, we're not, you know, I don't think that anyone's gonna, gonna say that these things can be definitively uh, construed. It's actually always going to be a work in progress, but I think we have to, to bite that bullet and say, yeah, we're just gonna be working on all the time. The idea that, that we're going to have a, the perfect law and then we don't have to do anything else with it, well, that, that does not seem very, it's not plausible, and it doesn't fit any reality that I've ever seen. So can I ask, since I have both of you here, and it's something I'm very interested in, A, I'm curious that you seem to sort of endorse accountability and then this notion of trust but verify. How does that work in the, the California Consumer Protection Act with regards to the, the non-discrimination provisions and the financial incentives? I mean, how, in your ideal universe, what do you want companies to do? Because it seems like those provisions are basically asking companies to do balancing tests. And, uh, you know, do we think companies are ever going to be, will the incentives and the stars ever align for them to do a balancing test that puts the consumer first? Um, and once they've done that balancing test, what position is the California Attorney General ever going to be in to assess that rigorously? Well, you know, this is this is actually why, you know, when I was on the panel, one of the things I was comparing between GDPR and CCPA is the express uh, granting of powers to investigate and powers to require information and reporting from the uh, from the companies. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that is under that was under theorized and under implemented uh, in the CCPA was how do you get from how do you get to a violation? How do you get to make your case? Um, the those are things that the uh, that the GDPR definitely did, you know, think about. And indeed, there's even a provision of GDPR that, you know, uh, says that the 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 
DPAs have to be independent, uh, and you know, depending on how you read that, uh, that's going to that implies some level of, you know, say security for their budgets, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, potential threats from hmm. the legislature hmm. to unfund or defund them, uh, and you know, because we have to recognize that all of these things can affect the way that um, that that things get enforced. But I mean, knowledge for the AG's office is. Right now, it's it's going to be hard to to come by, and they need more people even uh, to to process. And I think the same is true at the federal level. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly thorny issue. And if I had to put my finger on the thorniest issue of Cal CPA, that would be it. Um, I, I don't have the right proposal. I, I, I mean, I think that in my ideal world, where I could just you know point my finger and something magically happens, I think that. Ideally, the discrimination provision in Cal CP CCPA. I'm, this year, by the way, I've gotten off of that hill. I've died on it's, it's the CCPA. Everyone, I'm I, sorry. I, well, uh, this is another conversation, but we all live and die by acronyms. So I don't, maybe we should all just never use acronyms. Because. All right, fair enough. So the the discrimination provision in, Calif in the California Consumer Privacy Act. It was in my mind, designed to ensure that, at the very least, consumers are aware of the value of their data. It is a difficult provision. It was a, you know, it was a much clearer provision in the ballot mm -hmm. initiative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when, uh, in the AB 375 process, it accepted the you know, part section B, I think it is, uh, with two different seeming exemptions. Uh, and once you got it to that point, you know, my own very sort of frank parsing of the language is, I think this is like semantically zero. Yeah. I am not sure that it means anything right now. Uh, and uh, because it gives, it takes away from the company something in Part A, and it, and what it gives back in, you know, B1 and B2 seems to be coextensive with Part A. So right now, um, you know, certainly from a legal ambiguity standpoint, it's probably the one of the the best examples in the statute of something that uh, was well-intentioned and then through the legislative process sort of became unmoored from any, any reality. Now, uh, I do not think, although I don't know because I was not the author, it was intended to, against kinds of rewards programs that create incentives for you to continue to do more business with that particular uh, entity, you know, so like frequent flyer type programs. I don't think that that's actually uh, what it was uh, intended to hit. Uh, I think that uh, people are right in saying that it's hard to, that it, it, it does, did not do anything like the job of discriminating between those two kinds of situations. And so that's going to be our job uh, in the continual redrafting process to try to focus it more. Um, but, you know, if there is any kind of, uh, you know, the, I think it is very clear that it was intended 
to uh, say, yeah, these practices where we're already, you're already paying for stuff and actually you should be paying us more. So have you started working on actual legislative language? I, I know certainly from CET's perspective, we went back to broadband privacy where we had like a five-part test. Um, and part of it had to do with, and I, I hate to bring up the, the ITIF privacy framework where they start slicing and dicing based off of not just sensitivity in quotes of data, but also, um, I guess, essential services type thing, which is why, again, in broadband privacy, it, mm. these things make sense. What that means for the the digital economy writ large, I don't I don't know how you slice and dice that, and then ask the AG to make a determination of. Well, so so one of the interesting things about the, the way that provision uh, is in the California law is that the AG's office actually has uh, a statutory sort of role or authority to provide guidance with respect to the financial incentives provision. This is a specific, uh, it's a specific thing that I don't believe exists with respect to a, a lot of the other language in the bill. So, uh, in the law, in the statute. Uh, so I think you will see that question being addressed sort of in parallel, and, and we'll see what what ends up. Uh, but I guarantee you that the AG's office uh, is taking input and will get uh, suggestions on how they should f uh, word their guidance on financial incentive, uh, and at the same time that the that the legislature will be looking at it as well. Um, but, you know, this is, it's very much a work in progress. So that's the California work being done with EFF right now. Uh, I've got EFF and CDT at the table, and I think the last question that you were asked on your panel was, you know, over under, if you were a betting man, what was the odds of a federal privacy bill? I think you put it at 10% this year. I think I'd probably put just about there. Uh, Joe, I was wondering, I gotta get you on the air, and let's let's hear you. I, I like the 10% the line. So the best expression I've heard from anyone about this is that the, the GDPR made it a 10% uh, chance. CCPA made a 20% chance. Cambridge Analytica, writ large, all of that stuff, add another five. So we're at a 25% chance, which seems like not a big chance, except for the fact that no piece of legislation at the federal level has much of a chance at all. Most bills have a 1% chance. So a 25% chance is actually a tremendous opportunity, and that's why my organization is certainly enthusiastic about what could happen at the federal level. And, and, and so since we don't all use the same numerical scales, you know, <laughs> my, you know, my agreeing with uh, my fellow panelist on 10% was intended to say small. Mm -hmm. I probably should have said, uh, if I had, were using Joe's scale, I would have said 1%. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, and, and, and this is just, you know, my read of what legislative, uh, A, legislative priorities of the uh, respective parties in an election year where you're, where it's, you're coming off of, of particularly strong 
you know, midterm showings by what had previously been the minority across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I think that it means the temperature of Congress in general for uh, legislation is going to be, you know, it's it's just it's going to be hard to do anything with that with the level of sort of stakes in the ground because what we saw. Um, before the midterms was a lot of folks going, well, that might be good, but I can't give so-and-so hmm. a, a win, right? We want to beat them. We want to t- take them out. And so being playing nice in a regular, to- regular legislative way is just giving them things to talk about. We don't want to do that. We're going to deny them the opportunity to say, hey, I can get things done. So that's, as an overall level, I think it's very low. Uh, and then second, you know, it's, it is a hard issue, right? And I think that, in a, again, in these circumstances, your best chances are to pass something are going to be things that that aren't hard and controversial uh, if the if the legislators you know they might start with something like oh we preempt uh, and then we come and then somebody makes them realize oh preemptions actually not very easy there's a lot of hard things they can either say all right we get, get into that and work really hard or they can <laughs> say maybe we'll find something other sandbox to play in because this one is not worth it. Uh, And so because I think privacy is hard, because uh, we're dealing with moving targets both internationally and uh, in the states, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the various stakeholders to find a sweet spot around which they could even in principle agree, which makes it which is, I think, going to just make it kind of like, oh, I don't want to go there in the first place. You know, if it were different, if you had something that had to move, you know, then no matter how complicated it is, they would have an incentive to deal with it. Although even in those situations, you know, we can see them kicking cans down the road. Uh, but this is that I feel like the privacy legislation is eminently kicked down the roadable. Well, I would have asked the uh, ask you to go into your preemption discussion, or a little bit of the preemption discussion. You had an excellent quote on the panel earlier about, or, or not quote, I guess, but a point about the you know preemption and the different kinds of preemption that we can have. You know, not all preemption is created equal, um, and there are certain you know situations where we preempt in some ways, but not you know allow states to improve in others. But since it's not even relevant to the next year's discussion, I think that we can move on to, <laughs> to shift into a, a slightly different gear, which is you know. Know, a huge part of this show is trying to get folks that are interested in this and not in the field yet into the field and trying to make advocate inform and make better advocates in the future. I know that um, you know for a lot of the folks that we talk to um, in the advocacy world, a lot of our listeners just don't even know that that job exists, don't even know that the organization exists. But you guys are a little different. Um, the EFF does have, I think, a, a, a great reputation for very good reasons. And there are a lot of young people that are coming out of college that know, hey, I want to go into advocacy. I want to work at this organization. I want to fight the good fight here. Um, I, I would love to hear what sort of advice or even thoughts or reactions you have to that group of people. Um, and 
what do you suggest to the young person trying to get into advocacy and specifically, I guess, even getting to the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Is that the target that they should be shooting for or is there other organizations they should be, is it? How do we get your job, Lee? I don't want your <laughs> I, I really, you know, obviously, uh, there are not enough privacy and civil liberties advocates in the world uh, and not in the United States and we need more uh, Unfortunately, you know, we can't hire all of them uh, infinitely, and I'm not sure we'd actually, you know, want to. Uh, the There are so many different places now uh, for for our issues. I think one of the things that, you know, we're, we're, we're a little stunned sometimes by how we continue to grow uh, and how, you know, from a legislative and policy perspective, I have seen you know, our docket of issues just expand insanely. I have to, I have to, to really call issues so that I can, so that we can be effective uh, in what we do. But this is why people who want to do technology and civil liberties need to be all over the place, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, totally. I wish that the AARP had more technology and speech and privacy people. I want, you know, the every, you know, immigrants' rights group to have uh, have folks that are trained uh, in those ways. I want healthcare advocates to understand this stuff so that they can, you know, be, understand the, the issues around electronic health records and consent. I mean, tr transportation, you know, city planning, smart cities and surveillance, it's everywhere, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I guess my, what I would say is, if this is what you want to work on, there are a gazillion places where you can actually do the good work. And it's and because of the way that technology and technology vendor companies are hitting every level of government, are hitting every level of society, there's a, a place for you to contribute whether it's at the city level, at the county level, um, in government, as a watchdog group, as a as a, a gadfly group that's, you know, we 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 watched in you know the city of Oakland when the uh, Domain Awareness Center came into being. These were you know uh, funds for uh, local surveillance for port security that were going to swallow up the entire huge swaths of the city, but not, say, the really rich and elite places, but a lot of the places where there was, you know, people who were not necessarily the same as the, the, the elite wealthy. We generated or was came out of that was you know uh, Oakland privacy group that in sort of indigenously just really sprung up to protect uh, the citizens of Oakland and uh, you know that kind of work has led to you know has intersected with the ACLU work on on anti-surveillance and surveillance transparency and democratic control of surveillance in you know cities uh, and counties and you know that we need we need all that too i mean eff works in the, in dc eff works at the states but we're not big enough to yeah 
you know, work in every city or every county. Are you not franchising yet? Come, come. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This was an excellent chat. Um, glad that we could pull some other privacy advocates in the room and have a privacy advocates react. So thank you so much. Thanks very much, Emery. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks.